This is the Made You Look Podcast, and my name is Deontay. We do a lot of soapboxing in this space about a wide range of issues affecting black people. Listen, share, subscribe, and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to grow this network. In this episode, I engage in discussion about a black political agenda, the importance of African-American political involvement beyond voting, and the legacy of Chadwick Boseman with historian, author, educator, dean, and founder of the Racial Justice Institute at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, Dr. Yahuru Williams. Before you hear the segment with Dr. Williams, you will hear from three individuals I interact with regularly. They are opinionated and diverse in age, experience, and preferences. I ask them what a black agenda means to them to get an idea of the average person's perspective on this topic. Enjoy. Nardi, when you hear the term a black agenda, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? What comes to mind is both like a social justice agenda and an economic agenda. So for the economic side, it's putting forth opportunities and support so that African-American families can rise out of poverty, maintain wealth, develop wealth, pass, be able to pass wealth on in later generations. I think that means um, on the business side, access to capital for small businesses, for example. It means um, giving folks educational opportunities, if that means supporting higher education through free education, for example, at community colleges or more of the availability of grants and loans for higher education. It also means really supporting elementary and preschool education. Um, We should be putting a lot of money into Head Start. Um, So the economic agenda is really important because if folks don't have the ability to, to create or access resources so they can build wealth or maintain wealth, then we'll never be on par with our non-white counterparts. And the social agenda has to do with equity and rights and criminal justice reform and um, housing policy and other things that allow African-Americans to be able to sort of traverse society without or lessening the discriminatory impacts of racism. So those are, those are the things that are top of mind when I hear the term that you raised. Hi, I'm Judy. I am a licensed mental health counselor. What does a black agenda specifically mean to you? For me, I think that we first need to end the over-policing that happens in Black neighborhoods, specifically. Um, I think that we need to release the people who have been incarcerated for marijuana possession and distribution. Um, I think that we also, if we're releasing those people, we need to help 
um, them with job creation and support services. Uh, I think we need to end the discrimination that happens against formerly incarcerated individuals. Uh, I think we need to end the voter suppression that prevents those formerly incarcerated persons from voting. Um, I think we need to end the taxing of those individuals and making them pay for those fees. I think that that's inappropriate. Um, I think we need to re- a, to see a reduction in the police budgets and instead reinvesting in social services and schools. Um, I think we need to eliminate student debt. Uh, I think, at least for me, this pandemic and me not having to pay all my student loans has taught me that I'm spending a lot of money on stuff, uh, on on paying back on loans that I shouldn't have had to pay for it to begin with because it was wildly inappropriate to have an 18-year-old make such a, a huge financial decision. Honestly, it's a scam. Uh, I think we need to have a universal livable wage uh, because the 725 that currently exists is not livable. No person is a, should is able to raise a family, let alone like take care of themselves. Uh, I think universal uh, health care is also important, uh, and I think we need to to really take a, there needs to be some accountability in the the people that we elect by holding them accountable and also the the amount of money that we pay them should change like they aren't paid what is what I would consider like what a standard American household is if anything they should be making what the the median pay is versus far beyond upper middle class and then taxing the 1% at a higher percentage. No doubt my name is Rahman Kilpatrick, but everybody calls me Kil, sure. I put together teen centers um, in Southeast Washington, D.C. So I'm the director of family engagement um, for uh, Southeast, for part of Southeast D.C. Sorry, my occupation is all over the place, but <laughs> it's morally, I put together teen centers in the hood. Yeah, originally from Phillips. I'm a content creator. So my passions go from everything from being a producer with music, um, hosting podcasts, um, putting together just different, connecting the dots with different people. What does a black agenda mean to you? It's funny because when you sent that question to me, I really was thinking about it and I was like talking to my wife about it and I felt like God just put on my heart that to me the black agenda means many things. And, I, and, and the reason why I say that is because when you asked me that, my first instinct was the black agenda is you got to get your house in order first before you can do anything else. That's always my thing. So before we talk about voters' rights and this and that and all those other things, you got to make sure your house is tight first. And I'm sure that comes from me working in the communities for the past 20 years and and seeing that, you know, that this just isn't a low-income problem. You know, there are people from lower class, middle class, and upper class their house isn't in order. It may the upper class may look like they're in order because of what they have, how they dress, what they drive, where they live. But their their, their families are just in the same shambles as somebody from the middle class or lower class. And what I realized God kind of put on my heart is that with a lot of 
people play a different part in making that black agenda come together. So voter, voting registration, especially right now, the election coming up is very important, but that may be your position to play. You see what I'm saying? Whereas a lot of times people may say, because I already kind of foresaw this, like somebody saying, that, like, oh, yeah, kill, we know that, but what about getting people out to vote? What about getting, you know, law change and police brutality? And it's like all those things are important, but I look at it like it's a basketball game. Everybody can't be the point guard because somebody got to shoot the rock. And somebody got to be under the basket to get the rebound. So I feel like the black agenda is numerous things. It's just finding out what position you play in it. So my position is, like I said, what I've been doing for the past 20 years, making sure that your house is together first. You know, I don't want to see black lives. I don't want to see you marching for Black Lives Matter and you out here cheating on your wife. Well, you ain't seen your son in three. So for me, that's what the black agenda is. Uh, Dr. Yahira Williams, uh, thank you once again for joining me here on the Major Look Podcast. This is episode six. Uh, you and I have uh, some history together. Um, you were my African-American history professor at Delaware State University way back in the year 2000. Um, since then, you've gone on to uh, become a dean. Uh, you still do instructional uh, presentations. Um, I know you're, you do a lot of writing. And I know that you're involved in a lot of uh, education on the uh, public school level as well as the collegiate level. Um, what led you to history? Or you're a historian, I should say, for the listener. Uh, what led you to history? Was there like a moment in your life where you just said, I, I have to pursue a PhD in history? Like, what was the draw of it for you? Well, you know, it's interesting, Deontay, because we're talking about this in the shadow of the passing of Chadwick Boseman, who played Thurgood Marshall in one mm. of his films. When I went to uh, University of Scranton and was thinking about going on to uh, law school, my motivator, a uh, person who inspired me was Thurgood Marshall. I think there's a whole generation of young persons of color who aspired to be attorneys because they wanted to do the work similar to what Marshall had done in dismantling systemic racism and the moment in which you know, he lived. We're thinking about people like Constance Baker Motley and Thurgood Marshall, um, you know, Charles Hamilton Houston and others um, who were the architects of the NAACP's legal strategy. So that was my goal and my plan um, when I left, uh, or at least going into my senior year in uh, college. But you know, what happened was uh, I took a bunch of history courses. I was a history major what I realized is there's simply not a lot of history or historical knowledge that people um, have at their fingertips to really understand how deep systemic racism runs. Even today, the transition I've just made in my um, career from founding the Racial Justice Institute here at the University of St. Thomas is around the idea of historical recovery. And I'll give you a good idea. You know, um, two weeks after the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis, you had the celebration of Juneteenth. You had the commemoration of the Tulsa race riot of 1921 and Duluth lynching of 1920. I can't tell you how many people Deontay told me they did not know about any of those episodes in American history. So how can we talk about dismantling systemic um, oppression? How can we encourage people to be um, attentive to and understand the issues behind calls for defunding police um, if they don't understand the wound? You know, wounds produce narratives. If we think about, for example, um, Al Sharpton's eulogy for George Floyd, the one he gave here in Minneapolis, where he talked about, um, you know, white 
the white community always have that it's knee on our neck. The knee is the wound. The knee is uh, Tulsa, 1921. The knee is the the, uh, uh, the the denial of voting rights in the aftermath of Civil War Reconstruction. The fact that you get you know major pieces of legislation are enforced. The knee is the Duluth lynching of 1920. There are many knees, many manifestations of injustice that are that are uh, you know present in history. And when you don't know that history, when you don't have a, a way to recover and share that, people just assume that you're talking about um, what's happening in the present, rather than understanding the deep systemic roots of racial oppression in this country. So that's what drove me to become a historian. And that's what keeps me excited about the work today is going out and teaching people um, so they have a better understanding of, you know, the, 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 uh, you, you can't go and tell people to set the world on fire unless you give them a clear indication of what they need to burn. History is all about showing people where those wounds are and, you know, then thinking concretely about how to dismantle them. I think that, that what, you, what you hit on there is something very important because that is the reason... I fell in love with history. Um, the ability to connect the past to the present to contextualize what is happening to answer questions that everyone should have about the society in which they live. How is this happening? Why is this happening? Has this happened before? History connects all of those dots for me. And, and, and speaking of bridging the past to the future, uh, one of the people that I read a lot is Frederick Douglass. He said that I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. In a political context, I believe Douglass is telling us that voting itself is not enough. There has to be action before and after voting that makes voting effective for African-Americans. What specifically should African-Americans demand in this election and what actions can African-Americans take beyond voting to ensure those demands are effectively met in future elections on all levels? It's, it's a great question, Deontay. And the, and the fact of the matter is that Frederick Douglass um, wrote that talking about his own journey. And in the summer, we witnessed the passing of Congressman John Lewis. Mm. And he literally reiterated the same in talking about the importance of the right to vote but then recognizing that voting is not enough. In fact, if you read Lewis's final letter to the American people, which was published in the New York Times July of uh, 2020, he talks about um, the fact that the lessons of history are important because they inform that, but he's also very clear about the fact that democracy, um, I think the way he puts it, is not a state, it's an act, which I love it. I love that idea that each generation has to do its part to build what mm. um, he and Dr. King and others called the beloved community. Um, and then that becomes pertinent because that's not just important in terms of the U.S. context. That's the uh, precursor for thinking about um, how we show up in the world as well, right? So, so for the world to stay at peace, you know, we have to figure those things out. So having said that, when I think about um, our contemporary moment, I think about Douglas, and I think about this issue of voting um, in particular, you know, I, I think it was interesting when Congressman John Lewis passed and, and Barack Obama eulogized him and suggested that a fitting way to memorialize Congressman Lewis would be for us to push for a restoration of those sections of the Voting Rights Act, which were um, vacated by the Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder. The reason I thought that was important is because in 2013, it was uh, John Lewis who, in response to the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, 
said, I think what the court did was stab the civil, uh, excuse me, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 right in its very heart. And I, I share that because this is the idea that when we think about African Americans in particular, the right to vote is something that we've never been able to take for granted. We tend to see 1965 and the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the passage of the Voting Rights Act as the culmination of that journey, when in fact, um, over the last, you know, um, literally 57 years, if we're, if we're going from 63, uh, 59 years if you're going from 65, it has been a constant struggle to maintain and ensure the right to vote for African Americans in this country, unencumbered by political chicanery, um, unencumbered by uh, um, things like voter disfranchisement, um, you know, election laws, vote tampering, so on and so forth. It's ironic in some sense to hear the President of the United States talking about um, voter fraud and voter suppression, when in fact those are real uh, and have uh, real issues that impact communities of color, particularly the African American community. So, you know, voting is essential to the democratic process. It is the way that we participate in the democratic process. It is not the end-all, be-all of that participation. Um, and I say that because, first and foremost, as John Lewis and Frederick Douglass would have suggested, you have to be an informed voter. Uh, it doesn't help if you just go to the vote and you cast the poll for anybody. You know, we have to interrogate what people stand for. We have to look at their records. We have to um, immerse ourselves in, in their um, philosophies and, and really understand, if we're going to support them, what that means, good and bad, what their shortcomings are, um, ultimately what the bargain is that we make when we cast our vote, votes in the way that we do, and how we come out on the other side. Uh, the second part of that is that if we assume that voting alone is enough, then we put our, um, you know, one of the, the fundamental attributes of our citizenship in, in peril. Because ultimately the reason that voting is so important is the fundamental attribute of citizenship. It is the birthright of the citizen to be able to vote for and elect those that represent them. So when we think about communities of color, it becomes crucial, uh, particularly for African Americans, to think about what it is that we need as American citizens, as a community, as individuals, um, in order to be successful and to feel secure in our um, citizenship in the larger society. So you'll see people, for example, and this is a you know, great conversation right now, talking about what's the nature of a black agenda for 2020. Um, and that's going to bottom up on a, on a number of things. It's going to be how do we deal with and reform the criminal justice system? Uh, how do we talk about strengthening communities? How do we talk about dealing with structural inequality in health care and housing um, in criminal justice? How do we talk about perfecting democratic practice and ensuring that um, our Republican form of government works for all people equally? How do we deal with economic disparities? And so when you start talking about things like that, um, then you can get down to the granular policy issues that should inform the way, the way in which we vote, right? So, um, for example, uh, a recent poll found that 52% of, of uh, African Americans who responded to the black, uh, the black census uh, report said that they believe that politicians don't care about black people. Now, this is 2020. It's 52%. Go back to Kanye West, who's running for president now, which I think is a joke, but we won't comment on that. Uh, during Hurricane Katrina, saying George Bush, President Bush, doesn't care about black people. To have half the population, more than half of 13% of the population, saying 
that they believe the politicians are not invested in or do they care about black people is a pretty clear indication of, of the type of agenda we would have to fashion, which would both have to speak to politics and to speak to um, that lack of attentiveness, but also think about concrete ways in which we can do for ourselves within the context of our communities. And that's critical as well. So it's not just about what others do for us, it's what we can do for ourselves. When it's clear that we're not getting the level of service, the level of attentiveness necessary, even though we should keep the pressure on and hold accountable those who are elected to serve because our votes help to put them in office. I think that you uh, hit on something very important there in terms of uh, black people uh, responding to that particular survey. The majority of them believing that the politicians do not have their interest in mind at all. And also what you said there in terms of doing uh, for ourselves, you, you wrote a book uh, that I read while I was in undergrad, uh, Black Politics, White Power. Uh, I believe I have the title right on that one. Do you think African-American voters should be, for the future, looking at establishing um, their own political party or at least establishing a an uncompromising presence within either party similar to what the Tea Party uh, Republicans did, who are now pretty much, you know, with Trump in office running things in terms of the Republican agenda, so to speak? Well, you know, it's a it's a great question. Again, I, I, I'm torn on this because in some sense, I think that when you're talking about um, political parties and you're talking about party strength, I think it's our duty to make sure that our voices are heard in the two-party system because the reality is for all, all of our rhetoric about a democratic republic and our um, democratic form, you know, republican form of government, ultimately we have a two-party system and most elections come down to those two parties in rare cases and usually at the state and local level. Maybe there's a third party or an independent, but the reality is that that's the ecosystem that we operate in. So in those instances, particularly at the national level, where there's a larger question about whether that strategy could be truly effective, I have more reservation. At the state and local level, I certainly think that, particularly in areas where Atlanta, Georgia, for example, um, uh, Washington, D.C., where you have a large concentration of black voters, it certainly is worth consideration about thinking through the possibility of some type of black political coalition or a black political party or a black political agenda um, that could unify people in selecting candidates and drafting or, or further thinking through policy and then showing up at the polls to ensure that those people who will, who will support that are elected. But at the same time, as, as you just uh, mentioned and as, as uh, I was mentioning earlier, you know that also illuminates those areas in the community where there are gaps. And so that also creates the opportunity for conversation about how to address those gaps. So can you then bring into that conversation um, educators? Can you bring into that space um, you know, cor corporate? Can you bring into that space nonprofits? And I'm talking about with black visibility so they can think concretely, you know, activists, about how to address those gaps while also putting pressure on the uh, political system and the government to do so. So I, wanna, I want us to think um, about America for African Americans uh, after 2020. 
the election of 2020. Um, if we take a look at uh, the society as it currently is constructed, um, we have 182,612 Americans dead from COVID-19. Um, that's according to the New York Times. That's as recent as today uh, while we're recording this interview, which is August 30th. Um, we know that Black people have died from the disease twice as much as whites have. Uh, we know that the current unemployment rate for African-Americans is 14.7%. We know that there have been studies that have shown that over 40% of African-American businesses will not recover from this pandemic. And you add all of that to America's deadliest pre-existing condition, white supremacy, and it is absolutely demoralizing. However, things can get worse. And we know from modern American history how much blood had to be shed for African-Americans to even gain a few inches close to equality and equity in America during the civil rights era. Is it being alarmist to think that if Trump wins re-election, any gains will be lost for African-Americans and it will become Jim Crow all over again? Beyonce, but I, I think it won't. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we can see a rollback. One can anticipate, we've already seen that in four years of Donald Trump, that that rollback may come in the form of, you know, not um, continuing to support or lack of support for uh, those things that, that were put into place to, to deal with inequalities that impact, imp disproportionately impact um, African-Americans and communities of color. The COVID response is, I think, an excellent example of what happens when you have someone who doesn't feel that they in any way are um, or need to be responsive to a community and they can ignore that community um, as it's dealing with the ravages of a, of a global pandemic. Um, but beyond that, I don't think that you're talking as much about a return to Jim Crow as much as a um, evolved Jim Crow. Mm. Uh, it may live in the ashes of and be built um, on the bones and within the, the, the burned out uh, foundations of the original. But the fact of the matter is it'll be far more insidious because it will be a, a new Jim Crow informed by technology, a new Jim Crow informed mm. by neoliberalism, a new Jim Crow um, informed by neo-fascism, a new Jim Crow that in some sense uh, will have at its core, um, you know, this idea that's baked into uh, resistance to conversations about dismantling systemic racism, um, this age-old problematic notion of, you know, the, the inability of African Americans to succeed at the highest level, despite data to the contrary. So what worries me more than a return to um, segregation uh, or, you know, the Jim Crow that we experienced, you know, before the civil rights movement, black power movements of the 1950s and 1960s, will be this kind of new uh, Jim Crow, which in, its, in some sense will have the trappings of equality, right? But which in reality will be um, far more uh, insidious in the ways in which it is successful in dividing, denying, and ultimately um, making... African-American second-class citizens. If you were to speak to someone who um, I would characterize as being a full dissident in terms of the overall 
political climate of America. Uh, you know, I, I would characterize those individuals who responded to that survey. We, we were talking about previously about 52% of politicians don't care about us in terms of African-Americans. I would characterize those individuals as, as something of a full dissident, people who believe no matter what happens, no matter who is elected, no matter which party occupies power, that nothing for African-Americans will change. Um, how do you respond to those people who, in, you know, even in the face of everything that we see happening with this pandemic and in the face of the knowledge that we know things can get worse, how do you respond to those individuals who simply just believe voting is a waste of time because it will not bring about any substantive or concrete changes that will truly be beneficial to African-Americans? You know, my standard response to that question has always been that in a system where there are no alternatives other than the casting of the ballot, not to cast the ballot in and of itself is a denial, self-inflicted of one of these fundamental attributes of citizenship. It's also used very effectively um, by uh, opponents mm -hmm. who are able to then say, well, look at the voter turnout in the African-American community. And then pundits who use that to say, well, what's that a reflection of? Is it a reflection of a lack of support for Joe Biden and, uh, and uh, Kamala Harris? Is it a um, reflection of, of black apathy? Um, you know, what is it a reflection of? Voting for African-Americans is a sacred right. We spill blood to be able to exercise that right to vote. John Lewis, who is my hero, is only one of scores of people whose names we don't know who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have the freedom to go to the polls and have our voices heard. I think that as a um, you know, person of color, I take that as almost a sacred obligation. So I in no way allow anyone to, you know, tamp down on my enthusiasm about the polls and casting a, a ballot. It doesn't mean, however, that I think that the ballot is a magic bullet that's going to solve every um, issue in my community. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I do believe, however, that we all have a, a, a duty and a responsibility to exercise our votes wisely and to vote for candidates or parties or agendas that best reflect uh, our own issues or as close as we can get, because the alternative, again, is not to be heard at all. Uh, if I cast a vote for you, I then can write a letter and hold you accountable, even if, you know, that, and that's part of the challenge. You know, we saw this under George uh, Bush uh, part two, and we're seeing it under Donald Trump. Why do I need to be responsive to the African American community? Um, you didn't vote for me. Or the, the corollary to that, why do I need to be responsive to the African American community? They don't vote. The reality is people have to know we vote. We vote in numbers, and you better pay attention to us because we can turn the tide on you, or um, if, you, if you're not responsive, we can vote you out. There's power in that. We don't want to deny that power. The, the significance uh, of the late Chadwick Boseman's portrayal of the superhero Black Panther to African-Americans, um, especially younger African-Americans, in the context of how powerful mythology is in shaping, you know, that 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 one self-image. And uh, once you shape one self-image in a positive manner, what that means for their community 
um, and society at large. And of course, um, mentioning Chadwick Boseman, he is an alum of Howard University. You are an alum of Howard University. And, and what his life and accomplishments and his roles, uh, as you mentioned, as Marshall, which was, a, which, which he did a great job at, his best role, in my opinion, was as Jackie Robinson in 42. But can you kind of discuss all of those things? I know it's like kind of a loaded question. It's a great question. You know, I worked at the Jackie Robinson Foundation and had the honor of, of working with and getting to know Rachel Robinson. Um, you know, and, I, and I've studied Jack. You know, Jack, Jack Robinson, you know, people call him Jackie, but the, the reality is, you know, he liked to be called Jack. He was not a little boy. He was a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like we say, grown man. And um, one of the things that I loved about Chad's uh, portrayal of Jackie Robinson is that he brought dignity to that role in a way that allowed people who did not know Jack to understand Jack's character. That's a hallmark of a phenomenal actor who has the, the dual burden of bringing a historical figure to life convincingly, but then also in the process of doing that, given you know the racial landscape in this country, um, projecting on screen a sense of black masculinity, of dignity, um, of honor, of courage, uh, that also at the same time corrects the, the, the historical narratives and um, racialized narratives about uh, African Americans in general. Mm. We've had actors in the past who've done that effectively. Sidney Poitier, a man, I mean, I love him. Um, mm. Certainly Denzel Washington. If we start talking about um, some of the phenomenal women on the screen, or the kid immediately comes to mind, um, as does. You know, again, when we think about this, um, you know, uh, large writ, Leslie Uggams, so many terrific actors and actresses who brought dignity to the screen. Chad, however, was this generation's version of that. Mm. And I think the reason that he resonates or will resonate so deeply is because he did that in a range of films which speak so directly to the wound of what it means to be black in America in absent. So, by definition, to have played Thurgood Marshall to a generation of young people who were thinking about witnessing you know, record numbers of killings of African Americans by police and thinking about how to dismantle systemic racism and oppression. Um, and to play an icon who, along with Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, is probably the trinity of who most people know and associate with civil rights victories, that was important. To play Jackie Robinson, this iconic sports figure, who, um, in the minds of most people, was responsible for you know breaking the color barrier, barrier, but don't know much beyond that about his life or that struggle was important. But then also in the world of black futurism, and just you know to play Black Panther to give us this incredible vision of a black superhero. You know, we've been absent from that franchise, and here he comes. And, you know, basically, the the, the movie was phenomenal, but his portrayal was equally phenomenal. And to do so, again, um, with a uh, a power and a versatility that set him apart. So I think Chadwick Boseman is a classic example of, you know, the importance of role models, but also a phenomenal example of art and how art, is an important component of community building, of nation building, and of identity building. And what Chad gave us was a beautiful portrait of, you know, if you're a, if you're a young young man, black masculinity on the screen, right? Um, if you are a member of the African-American community, 
movies that celebrated the range of the black experience. If you are um, a young woman playing alongside these powerful women and not having to dominate, like uh, projecting an image of, of our community that it was sexism and, uh, you know, it's pretty powerful, but then the history was still there. So all of that, not to give him too much role uh, credit for the scripts, but just to talk about him as an actor, you still need somebody to bring a great script to life. And Chad Bo uh, Chadwick Boseman bought some of the best of what we could imagine about ourselves, both historically and in terms of fantasy to, to, to bear. And that's why I think I loved him, and I think it's why people will celebrate him for years to come. I think that's an excellent point to uh, wrap the interview up on. Um, what are you reading right now uh, or what are you working on? Any projects the listeners can be on the lookout for from you? I just finished reading Peniel Joseph's book on uh, The Sword and the Shield. I'm now reading a, a new biography on uh, Malcolm X. I have a book review coming out on that. And I am working on a book on lynching and capital punishment in Delaware uh, in the shadow of the whipping post, which looks at the history of Jim Crow justice in the first state, uh, and, you know, talks about, um, you know, people focus a lot on lynching and talk about Delaware's only lynching, which they assume took place in 1903. Um, in fact, Delaware had three lynchings, which I can document, but that's not the real story. The real story is capital punishment. The state had the most efficient system of capital punishment in the country, and until 1942, um, there are all these anomalies with regard to race in that system. The vast majority of people who were executed were men of color. Uh, and just to give you a sense of some of those anomalies, um, the first white man to be executed for rape in the state of Delaware is in 1942. And there have been, um, before that, uh, any number of black men who have been executed for that crime, which points to this idea that, um, again, reinforcing this notion that only black men committed sexual assault. Well, the criminal records are full, full of Document, uh, documenting assaults by white men on black women, on white women, on immigrant women, so on and so forth. Um, but only African-Americans receive the ultimate penalty for that, the death penalty. And my book unpacks that and talks about that by looking at how black female activists were at the forefront of um, challenging that inequality, trying to win justice and respect for black women but also trying to win a modicum of justice for black men. So. Well, Dr. Williams, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Major Look Podcast. For the listeners, um, if you uh, are interested in learning more about the books Dr. Williams has already written uh, and his work, you can check him out on the uh, Ken Burns documentary about Jack Robinson. You can check him out in the PBS documentary about the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. Uh, he is also a dean at the University of St. Thomas, an American historian, Howard University alum. Uh, thank you again. Take care, Deontay. Appreciate it. Thank you to the guests who joined me for this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in helping us grow, please consider contributing. Our Cash App cash tag is dollar sign DSU01. On the next episode, I will be engaging again in a discussion about the black agenda, but this time from a more radical perspective. 
featuring Morgan State University professor and author of The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, Dr. Jared Ball. Until next time, be cool, y'all.